Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Every year, countless children witness and are victimized by the traumatic events of a war. One of the earliest reports of a post-traumatic stress disorder comes from the Greeks who reported in the year 490 BCE that a soldier became blind after merely witnessing the death of a nearby soldier. Joining us today from Israel is Dr. Ronnie Berger, a psychologist who has worked with many trauma interventions, both in the United States and in Israel. There is so much for us to learn today. Dr. Berger, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you, sir. There are so many aspects of what it must be like for a child to live in a war zone. Let's begin. Where, where and how do you begin to even help a child who's seen something as horrific, say, as a, as a bomb explosion? Where do you begin? In a literal sense, you can say at home. That is to say, uh, one is really have to treat the entire family because in the context of the experience, the family is perhaps the most important part. So if we're talking about kids uh, like in um, the war, the Second Lebanon War, or in um, uh, Zderot, where the Qassam missiles are being uh, fired at, basically my view is that you need to intervene within the context of where we feel secure. Because one of the things that we know about post-traumatic syndrome is the sense that the um, sense of security is being shattered by the experience. Nothing happened to him literally, to her literally. But what really happens is that the sense of security is being, um, or the illusion, I would say, of security is being shattered. Illusion in the sense that all of us really feel that we are invincible. But in some ways, what happens today will happen tomorrow. And all of a sudden, when you encounter a traumatic experience, and it doesn't really have to be just war, but altogether, if it is a war, it is totally unexpected. And in some sense, negates all what you know by now. And so you need to continue living with the illusion and to regain the safety that you had before. So children can lose their safe harbors. They can sometimes even become homeless. And then what Absolutely. Absolutely. And what you do need is to work within their own mind, but also within the context of security, which is home. Very often what we find out in Israel is that the kids who are really post-traumatic are the kids whose parents are distressed, whose parents are post-traumatic in some sense. And so what we try to do is to help both their parents and themselves to gain together a sense of security. And it also depends on the age of the kids, of course. The kids that are young certainly need their parents. But that's one level of intervention, the home environment, the community. The second level is what happened in their mind. And in some ways, the way I define post-traumatic syndrome is the capturing of the present by the past. And in that sense, it closes the future. In other words, what we see is that people live in the past as if it is the present. Doing so, and we find it in research that we've done, kids do not have the same future. When you ask them questions about the future, they look at concrete reality-based experiences. Well, I want to have, um, you know, uh, uh, something that I don't have now, which is security. And what they do have is this, that the past really is in the present. They feel it could be uh, in the form of flashbacks. It could be in the form of uh, nightmares. It could be in the form of daydreams uh, where they experience the traumatic experience reoccurring. And then they'd be as, as if it is in the present, either by avoiding certain situations that seem scary or by reenacting them in some form so that they can gain some control over them. I would imagine, and, and this is what's very interesting to me here in this country, but I would imagine that one of the major problems is that the potential for a trauma is not over. There, You are in an active war zone in many ways, and, and things happen, and they happen repeatedly. So there isn't that sense of the danger going away. 
some ways, we are not living in a post-traumatic society, but in a peri or a pre, in a sense. And you can find it particularly in Zderot. It's a good example because if we look at the Lebanon war, uh, <coughs> it happened for a month or 35 days and it went over. And in some sense, if we have kids who are re-experiencing, we can talk about a post-traumatic experience. But in Zderot, when every day you anticipate a new attack, in some ways, we cannot talk about post-traumatic experience. We can talk about an ongoing experience. Now, the question is, how do you treat, or how do you work with kids who live in such an environment? And what we do in Stirot, and I say it simply because I have um, a mobile unit of 10 people who are working currently there, is that we look for relative security or relative safety. We cannot talk about an absolute safety. So in some ways, even in that situation, when the ongoing threat is present, what we look is, is to help them create a rational environment. In other words, if they do not go out very far and they have to go uh, very close because they have a 20-second alert, the red alert is the alert of a bomb thing, that makes sense to me. And it makes sense to me that the parents will curb their going out and their playing out. But on the other hand, if they cannot go to the bathroom alone or if they sleep in between their parents, I'm not talking about six or five years old, I'm talking about 11, 12 years old, then it's irrational in a sense. And we help them regain their independence and um, and live within that fearful environment in a more rational way. Does, does that make sense? It, what it I'm makes saying? sense. And the question I have is, do you then work with the parent and the parent becomes the mentor or do you actually work with the parents and the kids? Well, in an environment where, where the threat is ever-present, I would say what we do is uh, work within their home environment with the, pre- with the parents. And oftentimes we will, you know, uh, help kids to gain some uh, regulation techniques, uh, emotional regulation techniques, uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, relaxing their body, breathing correctly, um, you know, um, etc. But if we do it, we prefer to do it while the parents are there for two reasons. A, they can gain some of those skills, coping skills themselves, and secondly, they can strengthen or enforce the same methodologies that we're using. So in that sense, the work uh, with the entire environment is more effective, we find, than individually separating kids or uh, individuals from, from the group. But the group is very important. We know that social factor is a buffer against PTSD, so we work with the entire group. Do you begin these, um, shall we say, preventive therapies or interventions even when there's not been an attack, that you just do it generally as a general training, so to speak? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There are two levels that we are intervening. We are intervening within another natural environment, which is the um, school environment. And what we do there is we've developed uh, manuals for resiliency where we teach teachers to work with kids, to, you know, give them psychoeducational material, teaching them some coping techniques and some resiliency strategies, and that we will train the teacher and they will work within the environment of the classroom and all the kids are doing it together. You know, in some ways that we come to Zderot or to another place and we see kids that are going with our meals and doing those things, it's really funny, but it's very, very effective. So this is one level of intervention. Another one is, you know, training before there is a uh, situation. We, we, we might take kids over school and showing them a safe way when they can really hide if a bomb comes. Or we might train them while the situation is relatively secure. I've had several group of kids working together before attack and then utilizing it. And we have come, since we're coming on a regular basis, 
seeing it, how they apply it, when there is real attack, when there is the red alert, and they have to run to the shelter, uh, hear the um, bomb falling, do the breathing, do the uh, relaxation, etc. So, so we do it both. And, and while it is going on and before. So the preemptive work is obviously more of dealing with the, oh, how shall I say this, the whole society, the way that trauma impacts not just the person, but the family and, and the society. It's an ongoing thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and another factor that I might add, <clears throat> in our last research, in Zerot, we've done a very large research, and we compared not only Zerot, which is a town that is under fire, and a town that is similar in socioeconomical population, which is not under fire. And what we find out is those who are doing well are the ones that, A, have a strong family environment, but also the community is strong in the sense that they feel belonging, they trust their leadership, etc. So in some odd ways, you can look at the individual and work with him or her individually, but you can also look at the leadership, or you can look at the sense of belongingness and the sense of values. That's part of, um, you know, the network that protects in some ways uh, both kids and adults. So that is another level of intervention that we are thinking and considering. It's an interesting thought because after Hurricane Katrina here, there were a lot of people who suffered all sorts of levels of, of problems. And, and you've been involved, so I am told, both in the American environment and um, in Israel. Is there a difference, uh, a resilience, a different type of personality in Israel that makes it easier, that may not be the right word, but makes it easier for them to tolerate these, these stresses? I don't believe so, although some people in my society tend to think that Israelis are tougher in some ways. I think it's a, uh, a uh, perhaps a, a fantasy that we all have. It all depends on the level of uh, exposure. You know, it's an interesting question because it raises the question of whether exposure to trauma uh, builds your character or rather weakens you up. And I always say that it depends on how you cope with the situation, not the fact that you have been exposed to many situations. So that if you were exposed to war and terror and you cope with that well, you're more likely to a certain point, up to a certain point, to cope better and to be more resilient. However, if you haven't been coping well, that is, if you sort of, uh, you know, put it aside uh, and neglected to take care of yourself, um, had some nightmares, but it didn't come to the level where you can uh, do something with it. And then another situation happens. You will probably be more vulnerable in that sense. It weakens you up. Now, comparing the Israeli scene to the American is very difficult because we know by definition that man-made traumas were terror murder is much more, um, how shall I say, lethal or psychologically lethal than, you know, a, a natural disaster. Nonetheless, there is one similarity that I would want to draw between the two situations, at least from my point of view, and that is what I call the abdication of the responsibility of the central government. We see it in Zderot, we saw it in the Lebanon war, and I would hate to say, but it's true, we saw it with the central government in the United States. One of the things that we find out that in major disasters, the ones that suffer more are the poor and the disenfranchised. And I think in some ways, both in New Orleans and in Lebanon and the Galilee and in Zderot, we see it all over again. Those who are poor, those who are the weaker, those who are, uh, you know, um, immigrants seem to suffer more. And in our research, we find some validation to that because of PTSD and other symptomatology, somatization, depression was the highest from the group. And strangely enough, they're the ones who have the least support, both by the government and socially, so in some ways, what we are beginning to see now, that to talk about the resiliency in general, like we are resilient, or the American
American society resilient is a misnomer. I believe that certain groups are more resilient. And what we need to do is take care of the most vulnerable, make sure that they're the one who receive help first. And, of course, that would be children, because regardless of the socioeconomic background, their, their maturity would put them at greater risk. Well, absolutely. I, I agree. And there is more and more data suggesting that younger children are more vulnerable. Once we thought that younger children are perhaps did not understand, I'm talking about toddlers and babies, but I can tell you, and this is new data that is going to keep be coming up in my new research, that even well clinic, uh, well baby clinic, we see that there is more distress in very young babies and in mothers of young babies, both in terms of, uh, you know, uh, nurturing and in terms of play and even in terms of nursing we see less nursing at least this is the report that i get in the road than in other areas that are not under fire so to me even young kids that we usually ignore because we don't have the language need some kind of um shall we say safety um you know um atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, need to be treated in some ways. Now, I want to get back to your research and clearly want to hear what's going on there, but I'm, I'm intrigued a little bit about your mobile units. Okay. W- w- tell me a little bit, or tell our listeners as well, what, what happens when, when there's a bomb that goes off, there's an attack, what's the sequence of events? How do you guys get involved? I think the first thing that one needs to know in steroid is um, the attacks uh, are daily, in fact, and then sometimes it's... Uh, uh, five to six times a day. And there have already been times that I was in there, there were 40 times. What it means essentially is you run through your life and you have a red alert, which is a kind of a, a, law, a very uh, strong voice that comes out that says red alert in Hebrew. And everybody runs to the shelter and runs to their life. And very often you hear the bomb falling and things are shaking. So you get a visceral sense of the real threat. I say that because I think that people do not realize how often it happens. You live day in and day out for seven years with such a, 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 a direct and visceral threat is an enormous, enormous situation. And it's not uh, coming from the position of being a soldier where you're supposed to be, so to speak, exactly. exposing these things. That, that is exactly the point. You know, what people said in the last Lebanon war is, while they were soldiers, they can take anything because they are prepared, they have uniform, they have all the know-abouts to, to get ready for that. But in your own home, with your own kids, it's a different ballgame altogether. It's like, it's like getting into the sore place, uh, the most sensitive place. But getting back to the mobile unit, what we realized fairly soon is that many people are not getting help simply because they're afraid get out of the homes to public clinics for two reasons. They're afraid to leave their kids alone. The kids are afraid as well. And also they're afraid that they're going to get hurt and the kids are going to get hurt. Second, you know, if when you have traditional societies and some of the places are very traditional, they feel stereotyped by going to a clinic. And some of those clinics have most mental patients, not, not just people who are afraid or anxiety patients as we call them, but they have different schizophrenia, etc. and they don't want to be associated with them. So we realize we need a different approach. And the last reason we realize it is in our studies, we had seen that uh, parents that are distressed, as I said, seem to affect their kids. So we decided we need to see the entire situation at home. And so we created a mobile unit with 10 mental health professionals who are coming into the road and are basically visiting their homes. Well, for a psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, or therapist, to be in an environment that is not the regular place the regular time when people are coming out of a, uh, an inn, like the living room, is very difficult. But we have found that to be an advantage, in fact, 
Because what we can do is, well, the, the advantages are the following. First, they feel that you're witness to their suffering. And just by that fact, it is a very important uh, factor. And they tell us, you're joining us, you're with us. So that's, that's one factor that is healing in some ways. The other one is that you can see what's happening at home. You can see an interaction between father and child. You can see an interaction between mother and child, father and mother, and all this in the real life time, that is when there is a red alert, you can see the pathology, if you want, or the health, depending on the family, in front of your eyes, and you can intervene, and you can give them direction. And in that sense, it's extremely helpful to visit and do this home therapy, if you wish. And we have a research going on simultaneously because they, you know, fill question, and we find out that the uh, change are really unbelievable that we didn't get when we treated them outside in clinic. It's also very comforting, I would imagine, for them to know that you are willing to expose yourself to the same dangers that they are in. Absolutely. Oftentimes they ask our therapist if they live in Zorot, and when we find out they live in areas like near Tel Aviv, which is far away from the danger, just by the mere fact that we're willing to, to identify with them, to work with them, feel a tremendous uh, gratitude and a sense of, you know, caring. One of the things that we know that, that the sense of belonging to the country and to all society is very helpful for them. So in that sense, we provide that. But we also provide some very professional skills. We teach the kids how to breathe. We teach them how to monitor their own experiences. We teach them sensomotor techniques. We help them, um, you know, um, expose themselves in imagery to their uh, traumatic experiences. Gradually, we do some EMDR. Some people do some body work. We do some art therapy. We curtail the um, type of therapy we provide to the client based on the needs. As well as we do some family therapy and couple counseling and parents couple uh, counseling as well, if we see that to be a factor. You know, very often parents, when they're distressed, uh, forget to play with their kids. They kind of become very tense and they just take care of the um, mundane things and they forget the kids need some stimulation, some fun, you know, play with, uh, read stories, etc. And often we model that so that parents can be parents and provide that to the kids. Parents forget to play with their kids, which takes normalcy completely out of the child's life. Oh, absolutely. I think that, that that's part of the dilemma that we have, that when parents are under attack, they forget that they have to be empathetic to their kids. I mean, they really want to do a lot, but they are themselves in a mode of survival. And when you're in survival, you just take care of the basic needs and you forget, as Maslow say, about some developed things. But those are the real important things. And very often what we do is help kids play, help them express themselves and through play, through drama, we use some drama plays, through drawing, all of those are tremendously important. They don't have this opportunity if we weren't to come to their homes and do that. And when you, when the mobile units go out, obviously there's only a limited number of people. You too must be quite stressed with the, the volume of work that faces you. Uh, yes, in fact, we have had uh, all along about 50 to 100, um, you know, families in waiting list. It's, it's a tremendous amount of a number. Uh, we became so popular, and that, that became more distressing to me as a manager of the unit. I basically um, had added few volunteers to take care of those, and the people are calling me personally and asking me, 
can you come to see our kids? And what do you say to a parent that his kid is, uh, <laughs> you know, fearful and cannot go to school? It's it's heartbreaking. Um, just, just if it would be up to me, I would have had uh, five to ten more therapists, and we've covered the entire town. You're not sponsored by the government, is that correct? You're a volunteer? No, we're not. It's all um, contribution. Many of them are from the United States and other countries. Um, we have good people, uh, businessmen from uh, Israel, who are supporting our efforts. And no, not a penny to this. And, and from the Canada, Canadian uh, Jewish Federation as well. All of this is being sponsored by good people who really um, are willing to uh, to give us. And I must admit that few of us are doing at least partially voluntarily this. But there's a limit of how can do you how long you can do it. You know, um, I've been doing it from the beginning, a year, almost a year and a half, and um, we've changed that therapist because it's emotionally very draining. And physically, some people cannot take it anymore. There were times that we were under danger, you know, because some fell very close to us. And, you know, there's a certain level that people say enough is enough. But, but, but uh, we're fortunate to have wonderful people who are extremely dedicated and... Uh, from what, I hear, out there. from what I hear, you folks are doing incredible work, and, and we applaud you for it. Uh, I, I'd like to spend just a few minutes now, if we could, because we unfortunately don't have endless time, to talk about some of the research that you're doing. And as we go into that, obviously, the, the best solution would be not to have the need for your interventions. But what what is your research focused on? You mentioned to me in our correspondence that you were beginning to do some work with a gentleman at Stanford University. Yeah, Zimbardo, uh, Philip Zimbardo is well known for his, uh, you know, jail experiment and now the, you know, studies on the um, effect of the Iraqi soldier uh, torturing uh, some of the Iraqi population. And his uh, claim to fame was his experiment when he took uh, in his 60s, I believe, some um, very good-natured student, uh, high-class students from Stanford and transfer them to be sadists, just with the mere fact that he put them as a jailer, jail, while other students played the uh, prisoners. And his um, claim is that, you know, the system can ruin people and create evil in a sense. And he has been really talking about that for a long time. Well, I was doing uh, for a long time some resiliency manuals, and it dawned on me that if you can turn a person to be evil, and the analogy started from the Nazi regime, and I'm not comparing us or the Americans to any of this, I want to make it clear. Okay, His idea was if, if a regular German citizen could turn to be a Nazi, by the mere fact of ideology, ideology and, and a machine that really brainwashed people, well, then you can create people who will do evil things. And my idea was, well, if you can do that, you can create people who will be altruistic as well. So now what we are trying to develop through our resiliency manuals is manuals that will include anti-evil techniques. That is, how do you uh, strengthen people's willingness to put themselves out and become altruistic? How do you help people see the good of people? So that will be um, something that we are now working on together with Phil Zimbardo, and that is the anti-evil element with our resiliency programs. Interesting work, and it's very it's very comforting to hear that people are looking at the focus of making people stronger, better, altruistic. I again, once I'll use the term again. I, I applaud you for that. 
Thank you very much. And very good. Spend spend a moment, if you would, just because people need to know. Tell us a little bit about Natal. Well, Natal is an organization, an NGO that has happened, uh, that was opened um, about uh, 10 years ago by um, Judith Yuval Reconati. She is uh, um, a very dear lady and a prominent, uh, you know, uh, philanthrope whose father was uh, uh, a banker, and she decided to help the society. She felt that the price that we Israelis are paying by living under war and terror is too dear, and that in some ways we do not really take care of our people. So she decided to open this, um, you know, organization that will provide a therapy for those who are exposed and to their families. Some of this is provided through, you know, the government, that is, uh, through the Ministry of Defense and Social Security, but some of that is not. And for the people who, who are, shall we call it, second circles, it's not that the, you know, um, parents or the first relative was hurt, but second level, very often there is no help, no psychological help. And her vision was to extend that help to people. So we have about 150 therapies throughout Israel providing different locations uh, therapy for what we call anxiety patient or post-traumatic stress patient. That's one side of the equation. The other side is what we are doing, that is the community um, outreach um, unit that I'm having with about uh, 15 people. And what we do is train people mentalist professionals, other professionals, to help, uh, uh, you know, the population that has been affected, as well as work directly with population, like in the second Lebanon war in Sderot. And sometimes the uh, unit that work, like the emergency units, so as um, police rescue units, uh, and EMT, uh, and we work on what we call secondary traumatization, that is the trauma that their experiences experiencing and helping other people uh, who have been exposed to uh, terror attack, war, etc. It really brings up the point as well that when wars end, when the armies actually put down their guns, there still is a lot of residual based in the people who have suffered from the wars. And the residuals are psychological in, in, in many ways. Oh, there is, a tremendous, there, there is a tremendous impact. I haven't begun to talk about the impact because I believe that a society that is under war and terror for a long time, the effect is not only psychiatric or psychological, but also moral. There's a um, devaluation of morality, and we see it beginning, see it in studies in kids. There is an indirect effect on the level of violence in society. The, all the studies that are coming now from Iraqi soldiers that have been involved in murder in the New York Times, we see it in our society oftentimes. So I believe there is a long-term impact that are sociological, that are moral, and those impact we absolutely need to take care of now, because we don't have a, want to have a generation will be full of anger, full of hate, full of stereotypes. All of it we see in different studies that are related to this, and basically we want to prepare the youth to be ready for when the war stops. Now when the war stops and the hate will be in people's hearts, I don't think we'll be a very peaceful society. So this is one of my major goals, not just to treat people, but to prep them. And in fact, strangely enough, that you don't know probably, I work on both sides. I've been a professor in a Palestinian university as well, where we work with the people there to help them deal with their own trauma. Because I believe that when you have traumas on both sides and you deal with them, 
then you can get the population to be ready to do uh, to, to relate to each other in different level. I would love to, in the future, get you back on the telephone to talk more about this. I think it's a fascinating thing, and I think we need to address it in this country as well. We are speaking to Dr. Ronnie Berger. He is in Israel, and he is a psychologist who has been doing for many years great work in dealing with the post-traumatic stress disorders and other anxiety issues related to the reality of living in a war zone. Dr. Berger, we thank you so much, and we wish you a good day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.